So we're in Faith That Shakes. This is part 42. We're going to go through Acts 25 and start Acts 26 tonight. Yes, we are. And we're going to start with a review and introduction. Part 41, we looked at Festus succeeding Felix, the guy who was a slave who became the governor. And Felix, the cause of the religious Jews and trying to please them, left Paul in custody, although it was a rather generous custody. And we see where Festus comes on the scene, and he's not nearly as adept to the Jewish customs, culture, and religion as Felix was, presents certain challenges. And so we're going to jump in with verse 1. I want to say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for the book of Acts, this little book in the Bible, Lord, that is just full of history and amazing insight. And, Lord, just the, 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 the curtain is pulled back, and we get to see the early church, the first church, those early believers in action And I pray, God, that you would help us to see the truth that's in here. Let it make a difference in us, and we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Amen. So verse 1, now when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Let's stop there for a moment. Although Caesarea was the capital of the province, Jerusalem was a very important city as well, probably the most important city. So Festus wisely and quickly makes this 60-mile trek to Jerusalem. And the, the plot of 40 men bound together that we looked at a couple of chapters ago in order to kill Paul, they bound together to kill Paul, that had now turned a couple of years later into official policy. We see this in the leadership. It's good to have Mark and Kyla here tonight, all the way from Canada, Canada. They get the prize for traveling the furthest. We're glad that they are here. Yes, woo! Welcome. Verses 2 and 3, Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul. That's, they informed Festus against Paul. Now, I'm old, right? So I go back to uh, Gunsmoke. I can't help but think of Festus Hagen when I hear Festus. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Festus Hagen. Thank you very much for admitting that. <clears throat> so they inform him against Paul uh, and, and petition him, asking a favor against him. Listen to this. Here's the official policy. It went from just a conspiracy to official policy that he would summon him, that's Paul, to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So now it's official policy. It's in the leadership structure. We want to, you know, we want you to bring him down and we'll do the dirty work. We'll lie in ambush and we'll kill him. So this is raw, unmitigated hate. Festus picks up on this. Maybe it was the part about while we lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But he picks up on this. And kind of does a, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. So let's pick it up, verses 4 and 5. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you, the leaders, 
go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. So Festus has this problem, and this problem is this. Paul is a Roman citizen. He's being held with no official charges against him. So it's a political situation. He's trying to balance Paul's rights as a citizen with the delicate balance of the, the, the Jewish nation that's occupied. He, he's, try, he's trying to balance these two sides, making them happy, but also respecting the rights of Paul as a Roman citizen. So let's pick it up at verse number 6. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought when he had come. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which, notice, they could, what? Not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus Hagen wanted to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing to these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. Now, every Roman citizen had this right when the court system failed them, when decisions could not be rendered, when they were locked up then they could bypass the provincial courts and go directly to Caesar to get a verdict. And so Paul says, I, based on my Roman citizenship, make my appeal to Caesar himself. Verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar? Then to Caesar you shall go. Now, that's fine and dandy, except there are no formal charges. Like I mentioned, there's no formal charge made against him. It's more of an internal religious intramural conflict. However, the Jews carry this considerable weight, and the last thing Festus wants is an uprising. So providentially, another player enters into the equation. Are you with me? The plot thickens. Everybody say the plot thickens. Verse 13, and after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, check this out. Bernice is the daughter of Herod Agrippa, the great-granddaughter to Herod the Great. She's the sister of Mariamne 
Drusilla and Herod Agrippa II, King Agrippa. Also, although she had been married a few times, although Bernice had been married a few times, Josephus and quite a few historians say that she and her brother lived together in a uh, sick and twisted husband-wife relationship type of way. That's what history says. I'm just trying to paint the picture of who comes in to this situation with Paul and Festus. Now we have King Agrippa and his sister, girlfriend, Bernice. So here you have the filth and the debauchery of Rome on display. And and this, keep in mind, as we deal with cultural issues in our day, this is what set the backdrop for the explosion of the early church. It didn't hold the church back. The church blew up and prospered, had revival and harvest of an incredible degree with this as the backdrop. I mean, we complain about our politicians, right? But here is King Agrippa and his sister wife. Hello, right? I'm just saying. Verse 14, when they had been there many days, Festus laid, uh, laid Paul's case before the king saying, so Festus and Agrippa are having this private conversation. He says, there's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, the guy that got ousted, who was looking for a more convenient season, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together, without any delay the next day, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser, uh, accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such thing as I supposed, but had some questions about him, um, about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus. Notice a certain Jesus. Jesus, the fame of Jesus had yet to spread to Agrippa. They didn't understand. This is new, right? Christianity is new. This is not like the Christians. Uh, This certain Jesus, some questions about this certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, the Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Again, wisely, Festus, who had gone down and kind of, you know, fraternized, fraternized with the Jews in Jerusalem, now is, is leaning on the wisdom of King Agrippa. Uh, Festus is a novice in all things Jewish, but Agrippa was looked at as an expert. He had extensive knowledge of the culture, customs, and religion of the Jews. And Agrippa is drawn into this drama 
that's taking place. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So Agrippa is enticed by the trouble that Paul is causing to Festus and, and, and potentially in this province and potentially in the empire. What's the cause of the uproar? Agrippa wants to get to the bottom of it, partly out of curiosity, but also quite possibly out of an abundance of caution. I don't want trouble on my watch. So let me see what's going on here. Verse 23, so the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come up, listen to this, with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So this hearing takes place in an auditorium, this public speaking place. This is an event. This is a happening. There's red carpet. There's paparazzi. I mean, their morals are about the same as Hollywood's. So Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp. I see it as they come in in a Bentley or a Rolls. And the door is open for them, and there they are. Both of them in Versace gowns, right? They wore robes, right? So they, they come in in their Versace gowns, and you've, you've got TMZ there and, 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 the, and the TV cameras and the commentators going, we, we understand this is a Versace gown. We understand this is a Gucci gown. We understand this is a whatever, you know, designer Gal, they have an entourage. It says friends of the king. So they've got a posse. They've got commanders and the prominent men of the city. I mean, they're all so important, right? So important. This is a who's who list of Judea and Rome. Interestingly, listen to this. Paul is regarded as just the troublesome Jew who they want to interrogate. He's not really that important. I mean, not compared to these folks. Guzik says, most everyone present, excepting possibly the Apostle Paul, was wrong in their estimation of who was important and who was not. Paul had an authority and a dignity greater than any of the important people at this hearing. Yet nobody picked that up. F.F. Bruce takes it further. All these very important people would have been greatly surprised and not a little scandalized could they have looked down the portals of time and seen the relative estimates that later generations would form of them and of the prisoner who now stood before them to state his case. We look at them as nothing. Paul, on the other hand, would turn the world upside down. Paul would write most of the New Testament. Paul would be personally responsible for the conversion of thousands and possible, possibly millions 
He introduced the gospel into Europe. Festus, Agrippa II, Bernice, shallow, temporal, failures, lost. They're going to disappear in the sands of time like Ozymandias. They're going to disappear. But in the auditorium at this happening, at this event, they're the rock stars. And Paul is just the afterthought. Here they come in with great pomp, right? There's got to be horns. Here they come in, Versace. Snap, snap, snap. They take their seats. Verse 24, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. So this is Festus's opportunity to write a brief, a legal brief, so that Paul can go to Caesar and they can say he's here for this reason. Incidentally, the Caesar at this time was Nero. Nero. Now, he was benevolent toward the Christians for the first few years of his rule. We've seen this back in Expedition Early Church. But then, of course, something went horribly awry with Nero, right? And at this time, though, he was good. And Paul had no reason to think Nero would do him any harm. Now, Luke made sure the words of Festus were put into the record of sacred scripture that said, I found that he committed nothing deserving of death. Now, the Holy Spirit directed him to do this, but like this is proof positive. Festus did not see anything that would be worthy of putting Paul to death. So now we are in chapter 26. Are you with me? I can't hear you. Are you with me? Isn't this exciting? What? 26, verse 1, then Agrippa said to Paul, I love this, the arrogance of it all, right? Pomp and circumstance. You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. How king-like, right? You are permitted to speak for yourself. And I love the idea that Paul uses a gesture to get going. As if, you know, thank you, right? It says he gestured and answered for himself. Verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Paul is speaking before Agrippa and Bernice. Their great-grandfather, let me remind you, Herod the Great, tried to kill Jesus as a baby. That's their great-grandfather. Herod the Great 
He was awful. Not only did he try to kill Jesus, he succeeded in killing a lot of other Jewish boys. He's a monster. Their grandfather killed John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever lived, according to Jesus. Their father killed John's brother, James, the apostle. Their family is historically hostile to everything in which Paul believes and for which Paul is laying down his life. Now, this is fulfilling a call on Paul's life to even be standing here in the first place before a king. Because in Acts 9.15, Ananias was told, Paul will be a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And so Paul says with a gesture, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I get to answer you. Now, it's kind of worded funny. I think myself happy. <laughs> it just struck me funny like, I think I'm happy. I think I'm happy. I think I'm happy. I th-. Like he's trying to think himself happy, right? <laughs> trying to think myself happy. <clears throat> or maybe he's confused, you know, like I think I'm happy. I think. Actually, the wording is he is happy. And here's why. Here's why he's happy, and he thinks. He's, if he's happy and he knows it, clap. That's what his gesture was. He clapped his hands, right? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. That's, and that was the gesture. Had to be, right? The history of the hymns with Donovan. Here's why Paul really is happy. Because he knows Jesus loves people. Even dirty, rotten scoundrels like Agrippa and Bernice. Even up and outs, even the muckety-mucks. And Paul knew the truth. Listen to this. He knew he had an opportunity in front of these commanders, Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, all these upper echelon folk. He had an opportunity and he knew the truth of what he wrote to the Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that went like this, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? He just mentioned we saw some Jesus, this some Jesus. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all believed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul knew, he knew if I can just open my mouth and begin to tell them the story of Jesus, faith is coming. To these dirty, rotten scoundrels, to these no good nothings that have a heritage of killing Jesus and prophets and, 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 and apostles. I, the, if I can just speak my peace, they will have to resist the faith that will come from hearing that word of God. 
To those people, they didn't understand it. But Paul's old dirty, stinky feet were beautiful that day because he was going to bring the gospel to Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and the muckety-mucks of that generation. Are you with me? So Paul was bringing it even to these wackos. Paul knew the reputation of Herod Agrippa II. And of all people who could be hearing this case, this is probably another reason he was happy. He knew this guy would know and understand that the religious Jews had no case. That's why he said in verse 3, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. We, we saw this in verse uh, chapter 24, I believe it was. It, it's just not flattery. Paul's honoring the king, and he's genuinely happy for this opportunity to speak. So he starts, listen to this, he starts all the way back to when he was a kid. And we've discussed this. He memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He had his bar mitzvah. He continued his education under the great Gamaliel. He memorized the whole Old Testament. He began to work as an agent for the Sanhedrin. He admits all of these activities. It was all out in the open. There were no secrets here. But he dives right in. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged. Listen, listen to this wording. This is so powerful. For the hope of the promise. Everybody say, for the hope of the promise. Made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our 12, our 12 tribes earnestly served God night and day. Hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Now, this is interesting. Here's why. Because the hope, the promise made by God to our fathers, this hope that all the Jews were having in mind as they served God day and night, day and night, this hope was a hope to attain the promise. What's the hope? What's the promise? The resurrection of the dead. Now, I want to take a fresh look at this in our last few minutes here. Introduce it because this is awesome. The resurrection of the dead. Let's go back to the first promise in the Bible, which had to do with the resurrection of the dead. Paul undoubtedly had memorized this text. It's Genesis chapter 2. Notice this, and then we'll get into 3, which is where the promise is found. Here's the problem. We've talked about it. Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely what? Die. We're talking about resurrection from the dead. The day you eat the fruit, the day you die. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Talking about resurrection of the dead. Eat it, die. Snake says, You won't die. God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband. He ate. The eyes of them both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves coverings. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife, they they hid themselves from the presence of God. Among the trees. Then the Lord said, Adam, where are you? He said, I I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, she did it. It's her fault. I love that, right? Don't you love that? And and so then, you know, the woman's like, the snake did it. You know, this blame game goes on. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you'll go, you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Listen, and I will put enmity between you. This is not speaking just of the snake. This is speaking of the spirit, the, the devil that spoke through the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This We tend to think of the resurrection of the dead as being the body only. The body only. Like the resurrection of the dead is, you know, the body is raised up. But that is the end result and the culmination of the resurrection of the rest of man. The spirit and the soul. This is a holistic redemption. This was a holistic fall And this is a holistic redemption. The resurrection of the dead will end with a resurrected body. But it doesn't start there. It ends there. There's going to be a resurrection of the spirit of man. A resurrection of the soul of man. And and I don't have time to get into the depths of this. But the bottom line is this. Paul mentions the promise, the hope of the resurrection of of the dead. And here's the deal. All the law and the prophets, they were all speaking of this hope. This entire book is a book of hope. And hope has a name. And his name is Jesus, the seed of the woman, the son of the living God that would crush the head of the serpent. And rise victoriously with the keys of death, hell, and the grave in his hands. And have a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Including Herod and Bernice and Festus and Felix and all of those cats in Caesarea and Jerusalem. And that hope, that hope 
is summed up in the name of Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, he said, All authority has been given to me. All power has been given to me. And so here we see this in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do things, notice, contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. All that he had stood for as a Pharisee in the Old Testament, he didn't understand. He didn't understand. It was not about don't put linen and cotton together. It was not about uh, offering lambs and and blood sacrifices on and it wasn't about that just in that moment. It it wasn't about the Ten Commandments per se. It it wasn't about uh, uh, being separate and distinct from all the nations of the earth just for the sake of being distinct and separate. It was all with the hope in mind. It was all with the promise in mind that there's going to be a woman that has a son that will bring about a resurrection from the dead. And all of the fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve can have a hope to be raised again and live victorious because we were dead in trespasses and sin. But he has made us alive in him and seated us in heavenly places far above all principality and power. I'm telling you, this is an epic, epic story. It's epic. The resurrection of the dead. It is not just an empty tomb and, and bodies and one day we'll go to heaven and we'll have mansions and we'll uh, eat, you know, eat fried chicken and cornbread and whatnot with Jesus and the apostles. It's to be alive from the inside out. And one day the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them and forever we shall be with the Lord. And there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth and all of that stuff's gonna take place. But listen, here's the main thing. We're gonna be focused on Jesus, the lamb. We're going to a city where the lamb of God is the light, where there's no more crying and no more pain and no more sorrow and a removal of the curse. It is a resurrection from the dead, spirit, soul, and body. Can you give the Lord a hand clap right now? Stand with me. Stand with me. It's just powerful. So it's, it's so much more. It's, it's so much more. He's saying all that we hoped has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. He said it himself. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And he did. I mean every single word of it. Paul said in verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, you know, the ones that had started this process, raised from the dead, I shut them up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Coercion, pressure, and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
So he's telling his testimony. And he's about to get into his conversion. And when he does, faith comes. Old Agrippa is like, hold it, sucker. You know, you, you almost. You, you, why, why would he even say, we'll see that next time. But why would he even say, you almost persuaded me? Because faith was coming. I'm telling you, you got to have confidence in the word. And when you tell your testimony, you're dropping nuggets of word on people. And faith comes by hearing. And they're like, I don't believe, I don't believe. I, and when you get done, they're like, I don't, stop it now. Like, I don't want to hear anymore. Why? Because I'm starting to believe. It, it, it goes in here and somehow drops. It goes in here. You know, like words come in, words go out, words come in, words go out. But, but word of God comes in and it's like weighted. It comes in here and it drops to the heart. And, and people feel it. I did, right? It dropped in here and dropped into my heart. And, and I'm like, I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe. I don't want to believe. I, I think I believe. I think. And, and you have, do you want it or do you not? And I said, yes, I want it. And faith took. And the rest is history. That's the way it works. And we see it right here. So Paul is like, I am so happy. Thank you. Now listen patiently because all that I stood for, now I understand it and I see the end game. So we'll pick it up next time. Father.